Okay, it's 7.30, everyone. Good evening to you. Lovely to see you here. We'll start in a timely fashion. Try to be finished with my talk on or before 8 p.m. So we have time for questions and can be home in a timely fashion. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. O Lord Jesus, who freed us from the power of sin and death by your death and resurrection and called us to unite our life with yours, grant that we may feel the power of your resurrection, especially in the sufferings of our life. St. Thomas the Apostle, pray for us. In the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the topic of this course is titled The Resurrection and Suffering, which can appear a bit anachronistic or incongruent or not fitting together because the resurrection is glory and triumph, and so it is. So I'm going to give a little prefatory context and then read the resurrection account to prove the point. So I would like to begin with the St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, the whole quote is very beautiful. I'm going to shrink it down for time's sake. I'm always in danger of giving quotes so long you can't remember what any of them are. So I'm going to quote from Romans 5.18 until Romans 6.4. Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 5.18 through 6.5. 5.18-6.5. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, right? Original sin through Adam. So one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men, the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Notice that, that way that the one, many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is now the home run hitting part, right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this is beautiful poetry and theology that is connecting 
sin and death, resurrection and life. Christ defeated it by taking on death. We're baptized into his death so that we might walk in newness of life. That's the salvific part. Now I'm going to move forward to another, uh, and this is one of the more famous quotations of St. Paul on this topic. We're moving to Colossians 1, verse 24 and 24 through 26. Colossians 1, 24 through 26. Colossians 1, 24 through 26. He writes, St. Paul, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Right, That's the home run part. I make up in my in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a fascinating line. For the sake of his body of the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office, which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now manifest to his saints. Making up in my flesh what is lacking the sufferings of Christ is an essential part of the mystery being fully known to the generation of his saints, his holy ones, right? Because what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Did Christ, didn't he just say in Romans that by the one man's act, all will live? Yeah, he did. But he also said within that same narrative of by the one act, all will live, you're baptized into his death, so you walk with him in newness of life. That baptism, right? And this is going back to many sayings of our Lord now. I'm not going to give every citation of our Lord Jesus, but we know many of them. You must take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow after me. How narrow the great and constricted the path that leads to life and those who find it are many. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. To the rich man, remember on earth you had what was good while Lazarus had what was bad. Therefore he now is in glory whereas you are Tormented. So Christ is all, <laughs> Christ is all take up the cross. Mm. So St. Paul is giving us the theology of that. Baptism, you're brought into the life, death, burial, right? You're baptized into his death. That's why forever and ever you had to be dunked. It wasn't like, again, the theology of the church developed because in situations like the Ethiopian eunuch, he was manifesting the scriptures not dunked. So it's not necessary to be immersed to be validly baptized. That's clear from scripture anyways. But the church would for the longest time immerse out of that symbol. You're baptized into his death so you rise to newness of life. Okay, so that union. And we make up in our own flesh, my own flesh, your own flesh, what is lacking 
in the sufferings for the sake of his body that is the church. That's so powerful that the resurrection of Christ is linked with suffering for the sake of the church. When we receive our sufferings, right? Remember, sufferings can be of two kinds. Physical suffering. We have physical pains, all right? I did something to my foot. It's killing me. That's physical suffering, right? And moral, what we call moral sufferings, or we kind of call today emotional sufferings. Grief, loss, right? That's a, a moral suffering. Something happens in my life that is a challenge. That is a moral suffering that I have to try to triumph over. And this is where the devotional life to things like the crucifix, the stations of the cross, the passion of Jesus, so on and so forth, became very vibrant in Christian life. Because that was the catechetical reminder. You take up your cross daily, and then you receive the risen Christ in Holy Communion. That's been the rhythm of devotional life. I'm going to come back to that. I want to point to its reality in the resurrection as such. Again, all the resurrection accounts mention pierced hands, pierced feet, pierced side. We're going to go with the Gospel of St. John, just because I don't need to give you every last single quotation. Again, we'll just recap a little bit. Early on that first Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, the other women, go out to the tomb. Stone is rolled away. See vision of angels. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's been risen, just as he said. Behold, I told you. They go back to the upper room, tell the apostles, Peter and John, come out. Also, again, Mary Magdalene either didn't go back with them or went back and came back with Peter and John. Not sure which. They come back, find it just as the lady said, but did they find an empty tomb? No, they find the burial cloth and the cloth that covered his head. Peter and John run back. Somewhere on the way back, our Lord appears to Simon Peter, right? The Gospel of St. Luke accounts that he has appeared to Simon. So somewhere that happens, though it's not accounted for directly. And then our Lord appears to Mary Magdalene. She thinks he's the gardener until he calls her by name, right? The resurrection is personal. And then the famous, do not touch me or do not hang on to me. Until the next resurrection account is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he walks along them, but they don't recognize him. He makes known to them everything that referred to him in the scripture. Remember, Emmaus is the mass. You meet and you have everything that refers to the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And then we constrain Jesus. Right? It says they constrained him to stay with them. We build churches, and he is made known to them in the breaking of the bread, right? When the bread is broken, they see Jesus, and then he disappears. His real presence is in the Eucharist. 
And then when he appears again, it's all about touching. So that's where we're going to pick up, right? John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, all right? John 20, verses 19 through 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Okay, now, this is the start of the correlation between the resurrection and suffering. He shows the hands and the side, the great marks of suffering. Now, it is generally understood that all, he did not have all of his, right, his flesh was obviously beaten up and torn. So he is triumphant over sin and death. He's not the resuscitated dead man. He's not a zombie. Okay. He is risen and it heals. But that healing bears the marks of death, right? So the hands and the side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, <laughs> one more understated sentences is all of Scripture. Yeah, well, you know, David danced and exalted and Elijah, got, the disciples were glad. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, pithy understatement. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. I'm not going to repeat last week's class, right? This is the conveying of divine power. The divine power to forgive sins and bring about the reality of God. As the Father sent me, so I send you, right? Same way God the Father sent me, so I send you. I made the divine presence real on the earth. For Abraham was, I am. I'm with you to the end of the age. And you know me in the breaking of the bread. And then he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive of any, they are forgiven. Sins you retain, they are retained. Right? The divine power to bind and loose sin, which in his life people, who can forgive sins but God alone, said the non-believing Jews. Christ conveys that same power, right? Sacraments. Okay. Moving forward, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, or the Didymus means the twin, right? So Thomas was a twin. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So their disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, you all know this one, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. This is intimately powerful in the resurrection and suffering. It is presumed, we say, we have seen, like, we saw the Lord and he was like this, right? Presume there's some filler in there. So, I don't believe unless I, I want to, I want to see, I said this, I want to see the marks of death. I'm not interested in your talking about life. I'm after the conquering of death. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see my hands, and put it out your hand and place it into my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Faithlessness ends and belief begins touching the marks of suffering. Now on a spiritual level, you may have had the opportunity to witness in your own life a believer who suffers well. Some of us here witnessed firsthand the suffering and death of Father Mike Ritchell, which if you had a chance to see it firsthand, it was a beautiful evangelical thing. It was mighty in its testimony to, in a sense, put your hands into the marks of death redeemed by Christ and did faithlessness and brought faith. I think we know this emotionally. There are very, very few things that are more powerful than the faithful testimony of people who have suffered greatly. The martyrs are, of course, one of the big examples of this. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. It's the immediate confession of divinity. Jesus said to him, How you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now again, that's a very famous benediction on all the generations to come. But I just want to make the point that benediction, that adoration of Thomas, falling down, my Lord and my God, right? A lot of people were taught at Holy Communion when the host is raised up, say, my Lord and my God. But that adoration comes through the mark of suffering. And just as a note, in the scriptural accounts, we certainly would say that the other disciples didn't adore our Lord, but it's not stated as such. Just notice that. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Thomas falls down and says, My Lord and my God. Thomas, who has to be bidden to touch the marks of suffering, falls down and adored. There's a key here. The centurion sticks Jesus in the side and blood and water pour out. And the centurion exclaims, Verily, this was the Son of God. Right. So those two marks of adoration, both connected to the piercing of the side. So the marks of suffering and the marks of death are what can lead many hearts, especially hardened hearts, to confess. So our Lord, who gave all of those doctrines of suffering in his preached life, take up your cross daily. Someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn the other one as well. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter evil things against you falsely. Blessed are the mourn. The mourn. (laughs) Blessed are they, sorry. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. So all those things that our Lord says. Now our mystical power. And notice with like hardened men. Thomas, I won't believe. The centurion, pagan, soldier, duty of execution. It's the mark of suffering that rend their hearts. This is within the resurrection, our Lord lifting up, right? 
I don't ever want to be glib when talking about suffering. Because there's all different kinds. And people experience them in all different ways. But our Lord keeps those marks as a sign of the redemption of suffering. St. Paul clearly has that theology deeply understood. It was obviously given to St. Paul to know, and I have a strong suspicion that St. Paul witnessed it, right? We had it in the Acts of the Apostles, reading at Mass. Paul and Barnabas are arrested and beaten, and they get up and preach, uh, you have to suffer greatly to inherit the kingdom of God. Right? It's a connected, inheriting the kingdom of God and suffering greatly are one-to-ones. I want to conclude with a later resurrection account. I'm going to explain this more fully when we talk about the resurrection and the papacy. But I'm going to talk now about how our Lord speaks to the Apostle Peter and to the Apostle John. So we're going to start John chapter 21, starting on verse 18, ending with verse 25. John 18 through 25. I'm cutting short the, uh, our Lord with St. Peter because we'll cover that later and it's not immediately pertinent. So this is after they've seen the Lord. At, right? Remember, they're on the Sea of Galilee. They're on the shore. They've been out fishing. This is much later when the Lord appears to them. Again, we'll cover that specific account later. But this is resurrected Christ talking to St. Peter on the seashore at the Sea of Galilee. They've had the immense haul of fish. They've eaten breakfast. Christ has redeemed St. Peter as were the three. Remember St. Paul, St. Peter denied Christ three times. And Christ says three times, do you love me? Again, we'll talk about that more explicitly in, in resurrection of the papacy. But now verse 18. Jesus talking to Peter the apostle. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will fasten your belt for you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after he had said this, he said to him, follow me. So now this is within the papacy. Again, we'll start, but this is, Saint, this is Jesus in the resurrection, now in a personal way, you will suffer. Follow me. And then a juxtaposition. Peter turned and saw following them the disciple who Jesus loved, right? St. John, who had lain close to his breast at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Right? That important juxtaposition, right? Do not play the comparison game. St. John lived a whole lot longer than St. Peter did. If you know the life of St. John, he had to suffer a lot, especially in his later life. But again, to Peter, don't 
See, Canadian Peter re immediately receives the vocation to suffering. It says, what about him? Oh, what if I wish that he remain until I come? What is that to you? It's fascinating, right? What is that to you? What does that have to do with you? Stop comparing, which is super hard, right? I tell people, this is one of the first instances of clerical jealousy, right? Jealousy in the clerical life is a huge, huge problem. Who gets the better assignment? Who gets the nicer associate? You know, all this nonsense, right? It's a huge temptation, right? Who gets sent to what seminary? It all starts right there. And all this, she says, what is that to you? Follow me. It's interesting in the scriptural accounts, in the first follow me, it's said in, a, in the, the normal verbiage. The second follow me is exclamatory. Right? The first one, someone else will dress you and you take you where you do not want to go. And when he says, he said, follow me. The second time, what is it if I want him to remain until I come again? What is that to you? Follow me. Imperative, exclamatory. Do not compare your sufferings. Some people will suffer a lot. Some people will suffer a little. Some people will suffer what appears like a lot, but actually isn't. Some people will appear like it appears like a little, but is actually a lot. So on and so forth. Right? The point in this is we all have a vocation in Christ. We all have a particular calling in Christ. And just like Apostle John should not ape the power that is given to Peter and the suffering outwardly that will come to that office. Again, we'll flesh that out. I'm teasing the papacy one, but there's a lot contained. The resurrection of the papacy, there's a ton contained in there. But on the moral level, that's why St. Paul says, I make up in my flesh what is laughing the sufferings of Christ for the sacred church. He's very ind individual because he's understanding what our Lord is saying to St. Peter. You will suffer. What about him? What is it to you? Stop with that. What is that to you? It's nothing to you. Right. Now it continues, verse 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things, who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's a fascinating sentence. It's obviously uh, hyperbolic. <laughs> Everything he did, the world itself could not contain all the books. There'd be so many, it'd be huge amount of books. So how has Christian tradition understood that word? All right. So number one, it's the Apostle St. John is self-confessing, I'm the beloved, right? Now we've gotten to the end, I'm the beloved disciple. But a lot of the church fathers interpreted where all the things Jesus said to her, the whole world couldn't contain it. What does that mean? They said, it's a spiritual challenge. Yes, our Lord did all these things and they live within the life of the church. But the whole world can't contain it because you and I are invited to be a part of that life. Every Christian is invited to unite their life to the life of Christ. So in a very real, everything that, thing that Jesus did is everything he did in my life, in your life, in the life of every Christian that has ever been or will be. Right? The world can't contain that book. 
Right? That's a spiritual, that's a homiletic interpretation of that passage. The practical interpretation of that passage is the life of Jesus is not contained merely in a book. These things are written so that you have faith. Your faith has to be a right. But the life of Jesus is not merely contained in a book. The life, why does St. Paul says, I make up in my life what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's what is being sanctified. Remember, Christ says, I don't pray for the world. He said it from there. I do not pray for the world, but that you take them out of the world. So St. Paul doesn't make up in his sufferings was lacking for the world, but for his body, the church. So can I offer my sufferings for someone's conversion? Yes, of course. That in a sense they as it were be taken out of the world. But in a proper understanding, right? The world as we know it is passing away. But the parts of our life that we redeem it. Part of it we will choose. Take up your cross daily. Part of it we don't choose. Another will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. So that'll be my last point as we're approaching the 8 o'clock hour. Remember within the world of sufferings, they are all redeemed by Christ. They all have meaning. When you're in the midst of suffering, finding that meaning can be super hard. So again, we don't judge anyone who's in suffering and struggles because if you've ever been in a lot of suffering in that moment, it can be really hard. However, as people who hold the faith and want to live it, we do understand that our suffering is providential. It's something that God is permitting for the redemption of the body of Christ, the church. And for us to unite it is extremely important. And that it might be the thing that leads the hardened heart to faith. The non-believer to believe. The pagan to we saw this all the time in the martyrs, right? People, how can they do this? That's why who rocked the heart of the Roman Empire, this massive world-conquering machine, the martyrdom of teenage girls. How can they do this so even happily? That was the great thing they couldn't understand. They do it not only do they do it, they do it happily. Soldiers and centurions, you can get them to give up their principles in a heartbeat. These girls not. And that grace is being poured out. It causes them to question, why are we doing this, right? So on and so forth. Okay, I'm going to not get overly sermonetic. I will open it up to, because there can be many questions about suffering and redemption and so forth. So in that piece, any questions or comments or curiosities? Pat. The suffering that Christ endured during his passion just seems underrepresented um, in a lot of things. For example, when you see the corpus of Christ on a lot of crucifixes, what you see are the wounds that you know were still there in his glorified, you know, resurrected body. But we know that his passion he suffered so much more than that. And 
Is there a reason for that, or is that just... So you're talking about the representation of the passion in Christian art over time. Okay, yes. so we'll try to do this briefly. Early, early Christian art, you see the crucifix almost never. You see images of the suffering Christ almost at Why? Because if you want to know what a crucified person looks like, just walk outside, right? Representing crucifixion, number one, would be very artistically difficult to do. Number two is not necessary. To under, in the early Christian life, to understand that you have to suffer is not the hard lesson. It's the easy one because it happens all the time. Crucifix is visible. People you know are being turned in. They are being flayed. They're being burned alive. They're being fed to lions. I mean, which is gruesome stuff. You don't need a picture of that. What you need is, right, so what do you find a lot in early Christian art? The good shepherd, Christ carrying you, like, hey, he's going to help you do this. The glorified cross. See, you do this because it leads to glory. That's what you need to know. Okay? You don't have two millennia of resurrection talk. You don't have a faith that conquered and did away with all of that. You don't have, you know, your pope and bishops don't have authority in the world. So that's the first reason why you don't see it. As Christian history progresses, especially after the legalization of the faith, that's when it becomes aware in the Christian church, number one, we've done away with almost all of these things, and we've especially done away with them to Christians. So, right, when the Roman Empire became Christian, it banned crucifixion for what I hope are obvious reasons, all right? You're not being tormented for your faith any longer. Now, similarly, when you're going to pagan lands, in the pagan, the first Christians in Germany, in Gaul, in England, so on and so forth, they, you know, they did awful things. So, again, you have a lot more art of glory and resurrection because that's what you need to see. When you're marching out to the pagan German tribes, they are going to nail you to logs and skin you alive. You don't need suffering images. They're right in front of you. You need resurrection. So again, when you move into what we might call the high Middle Ages and, the, and so on and so forth, where Christianity becomes a dominant force, you find in the mission lands, a lot of images of glory. Because where you're being... Japan, right? They didn't need crucifixion scenes they saw, right? It had to be catechized, but they had a lot of icons of glory. Now you have a stable Christendom where no one is really actively persecuting you for your faith. The memory of crucifixion now gets remote. You start to represent crucifixes in art. A huge debate begins. How realistic do we need to make the suffering Christ in art? And the debate is centered around two basic principles. Number one, can we ever really do it justice? And if we can't do it justice, should we do it? Right. And second, should we not basically, in the representatives of the sufferings of Christ, either have them in like, have them in the icon of the resurrection. 
It's generally understood Jesus Christ doesn't appear resurrected all scourged. He just appears resurrected with hands inside. That becomes the dominant idea. So that in crucifixions and so on and so forth, what is enumerated? Hands, feet, side. Because they said, we can't actually represent what he went through. And so we're going to represent it with a key to the resurrection. And so what becomes much more popular in Christendom are devotional acts that bear sufferings. Passion plays, pilgrimages, right? Silices, flagellate, right? You want to have an icon of people getting beat up, beat yourself up. If your life is easy going and whatnot, beat yourself up. That became what was called the devotio moderna, um, the imitation of Christ of Thomas Akempis, the uh, Stations of the Cross of St. Francis of Assisi, so on and so forth. The general key was we cannot reproduce the sufferings as such. I mean, crucifixion is as horrible as it gets. The Renaissance begins to change a little bit because our artistic skill gets greater. And that's when you start to see, especially in Spain and Italy, Spain takes us into the new world, you start to have the skills to represent the sufferings much more clearly. They have the artistic, and that's when they start to appear because they say, well, we're a long distance away from crucifixions and so forth, so we have to represent it in a real context, especially to cultures that didn't really have crucifixion as such. Right? In the New World, they had all kinds of god-awful ways of executing people. They had somehow not figured out crucifixion, which was only kind of amazing because the Aztec Empire was, was running step-by-step step with the Romans on how to subjugate pop. Right? That's the whole, that was the whole Roman bit. You want to subjugate populations, you scare the bejesus out of them. By do, screw around with us, this happens. The Aztecs had their own version but didn't have crucifixion as such. So that's why in the New World it becomes very popular. So you go today in Mexico and you see all kinds of beat up Christ. But that still become in the German world, in the Anglic world, that never really took hold. So when you are in a country like the United States where Catholicism is dominantly German, and people think it's dominantly Irish, I mean Irish don't really have this either. You tend to have that theological point of view where we can't actually represent what he went through, so our icons should have keys of resurrection. They need to have two hands, two feet side, but not a crucifix of Christ all beat up and scourged. I think there can be a very legitimate question in the contemporary world as to what we should be doing in contemporary Christian art. Should we move back to sort of a Fra Angelico iconographic reality that the Greeks still maintain? Again, which has no, I mean, if you look at the crucifixion or the uh, Ecce Homo, Behold the Man, or sort of that, they, they don't have a beat up Jesus. They have the two hands, the crown of thorns, things like that. Is that the, uh, the key of Christian art? Or now, because we can do such realism, we can portray Christ suffering and beat up in a much more real way than they ever could before. And so maybe we should do that. That's a question or a debate. For the people who like 
cast the statue in our church who were in the air, basically good German Anglo Catholicism. That was never a question that was in their minds. Did that address you? I mean, that's again, I think there's a very, and there are contemporary artists who are asking that question. This gets into the world of aesthetic. How much is too much? Now then you follow each other asking that. But that's, that part is a live question in contemporary Christian. But that's a basic sketch, right? I'm very basic sketch of why Christian art did not represent suffering in an extreme fashion. The most extreme versions you'll find it are in Spain and Italy and especially in the New World in those places. Well, allowable mortifications is a, is a great question because you should talk to a confessor or a spiritual director about your allowable mortifications. So let's talk about some things that the church asks us all to do corporately for mortifications, all right? Number one, not to be a smart aleck, but whatever sufferings come your way, you take them cheerfully to the best of your ability. That's, that's numero uno. Bad things that come your way, you take as cheerfully as you can, right? Secondly, fasting. Now, fasting is basically understood as not eating until the close of day, right? More, more or less. All, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's all kinds of versions. We can spend forever talking about that, but, right? The Christian church has traditionally fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. You can go back to something called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, a second century document. Wednesday, because Jesus was betrayed on a Wednesday. Friday, hopefully that's obvious, the crucifixion on Friday. Never on Sundays and never on Thursdays except for Lent, right? So fasting, Wednesdays and Fridays are good ones. Then what I would call acceptable mortifications for everyday life. St. John the Cross teaches really good on this. Whenever an option is in front of you, take the least pleasant. If you can have peas or carrots and you like peas and don't like carrots, have the carrots. If you can sit next to Bill or Al and you don't like Bill but you do like Al, sit next to Bill. So on and so forth. When there's an option, take, right? There's a lot of little things around the pleasures of life that can be done. Leaving the sugar packet out of the coffee, not having that second... Now, other mortifications that are classics that should be done after talking to a confessor or a spiritual director, things like sleeping on the floor, taking cold showers. That's a winner, isn't it? That's a good one. Give it up for the good God, all right. Sidebar, if you take cold showers always in like July and August and never in February, March, not the same. All right, so... Oh, I take cold showers every August, Father. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anyways, right. Those kinds of things. Those, I think, are very acceptable things that you can do very simply. You go in for a confession and say to Father, I'd like to take cold showers once a week. A, a halfway with it, priest would say, how's your health? What other things do you do? And as long as you can give basic answers to that, they would probably say, Sure. 
other things you can go, there's all kinds of things to go on and on, but I don't want to do those here because that gives people heady ideas. A little note on self-chosen mortifications, right? This is a little basic idea. If you watch, you can go on YouTube and watch this, right? Strength competitions, they have some huge weight to move. And they have like one hulking strongman, 10 regular-sized guys, and 20 little tiny Asian people. Guess who moves it the fastest? The 20 little tiny Asian people, right? Small mortifications regularly done will move you in the spiritual life a lot faster than the big ones. It seems counterintuitive. Let's get, let's get the Incredible Hulk out here to move this thing. Small. That's where St. John of the Cross's advice comes from. St. John of the Cross said you shouldn't belch because it's enjoying your food twice. I don't know if I've had that experience. Oh, no, I don't know what he was eating. <laughs> Maybe it was. Spanish beer? I ain't no joy in that. For, for most of us, especially in modern life, like bearing, not complaining about that driver, that tweeter, so on and so forth, right? You know what's a big, big mortification these days? Not talking bad about that cardinal and that bishop, like that's, because they're doing bad, you say, okay, they did something that was bad and silly. I'm going to not badmouth them. I'm going to just talk about what's good and do it. Well, right? St. Josemaria said this. He said, remember when someone talks bad about you? Thank God for it and praise God for all the worst things that they could have said, but they don't know. That can be very, very helpful. They said bad things, right? right? St. Therese of Lisieux, if people talked bad about her and lied about her, she just took it like, yeah, okay. I don't recommend that. That sounds super hard, but. <laughs> so suffering is just so countercultural today. I mean, the medical, medical practices to eliminate, reduce, mitigate all suffering. I read a story about a priest, um, read it recently, I don't know when this occurred, but he was dying, I don't know of what, but uh, he refused any kind of painkillers and to, to find joy in his suffering. Well, like I said, so yes, we live in a culture that is predicated, in a, a, an economic system that is predicated on maximizing your pleasure and your ease. That's its, that's its reason for its existence. And we, it does it super well. Um, so that's for individual Christians. Like, I, I just bring up, I don't mean to be sentimentalist, but a lot of us knew Father Mike, who did things like you're talking about, which are, in their own moment, heroic and they're very edifying and you know, I would never ask for such things to come to myself because I let's say Margaret Mary say I hope I fear all things from my own weakness but I hope all things from his goodness and amidst all of that uh, pleasurability and whatnot we should never be flippant or too open about talking about these things because there's a lot of people who suffer a lot that is unseen and, and unknown. 
and so it's, it's easy to, um, I should say, it can be hard to resonate with that for some people. It can be hard to feel that with the weight that it deserves because of the societal structure in which we live that is generally very pleasant and therapeutic. Right? So each of us should do our best to do our small things well, but not take, talk about sufferings uh, lightly. All right, anything else? Yep. Is there something that just like two, three points that say, you know, one, two, three, something I could say to them to ease and make them think that to endure the suffering? Right. So, because this can be acutely difficult, as you mentioned, when someone, especially someone who professes to be religious, but cannot in this moment place their suffering in a religious context. Or someone who happens to be religious and has the perception that, this is the famous one, God wants you to be happy. Right? Now, number one, where's that written? Okay. So if someone is in that, this, this is where it tends to be hard. They are religious, right? Or non-religious, right? The non-religious is tried to be purely evangelical. Jesus Christ wants to be so close to you, so close to your child. If you can say his name, he will give you peace. Jesus Christ walked that pain so that that pain, right? If they don't have faith, that's, I try to be purely evangelical. It's the most effective thing that I've been able to do. When you are able to say, I, I try to avoid saying, I know, I understand, I had someone who, make no comparisons except for Jesus. And I try to follow it up with the Divine Mercy Chaplet. I'm not saying I'm batting a thousand on that point with non-believers, but it is the singular, Jesus did this, can I say this chaplet with you? So if you can tell the story of the Lord Jesus, suffered, he was innocent, he took the beating, he took the pain, his mother was right there with him, and she felt all of that. I don't know what you're feeling, he knows what you're feeling. I don't know what you're experiencing, she knows what you're experiencing. Will you cry out to them? Now, Believers who are in this same spot, then I found it helpful to go to that passage from St. Paul. What your child can do can be so much good for the world. What your mom is going through can be so much good for the world. And if you can talk to the person who's actually suffering, this is what's most amazing. The person who's actually suffering can usually understand this better than the person who has to watch it. So in that situation... It is to tell loved ones of the sufferer 
Jesus knows this. Pray, say his name with me. Say the chapel with me. You can be so close to bring salvation and grace to the church. But if you can talk to this, the person, who, the sufferer, they are the ones who can most clearly see it. That's why you'll... Um, I'll never forget one of these moments. I was with uh, one of my godchildren that died of SIDS. I got a call at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was down at St. Paul's. Raphael's not breathing there. Run the hospital. I was, went to the house. I helped the dad build the casket for his barely one-year-old child. Now, they were people of faith. At that funeral mass, that mother looked... She glowed like an angel. She had such peace and beauty in her heart. Six views behind her are all these 20-something new moms who are a wreck. I mean, they're with their husbands, bawling, can't handle it. Why? That mom is getting grace because she's suffering. She's getting grace. She can contextualize and understand it. They can't because they're... Because what are they doing? They're imagining being her. And they can't handle it. Right? So that's what happens to a lot of times. With, they see they're not suffering directly. They see it and they can't handle it. So if, again, that's the point. If you can be close to the sufferer, that's the most powerful thing because they can hear the voice of God. But if you can't, then I do go to St. Paul, build up the Christ of the church. Walk with Jesus in the passion. Say the chaplet with me. Yep. He, he, did he did everything. But then Paul says, I do this to him. And again, if no one, we say, because if no one made up in their body what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ, Christ would still have redeemed the world. Right? That's the theological truth. Christ did do it all. If no one joined in, it would still be fine. But the glory is you can join in. And, you can, and again, if you talk to someone who has suffered and come out of it, what they will say is, like if you talk to this mom, is talking about the death of her child her favorite thing to do in the world? Obviously not. Can she testify to it in a really powerful way? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, but it is, again, in my experience, being directly even, do not try to contextualize it. Because if you try to contextualize it, then you're trying to compare it to someone else, and that immediately feels judgmental and small. And, which is hard to do, because the immediate thing you want to do is find connection with them. So, hey, I understand you. Or if I can somehow make it not so bad, right? That's a real temptation. I want to say something. I've done this. I want to say something that makes it seem not so bad. And what that gets heard as as discounting or comparing. So that's the trick to avoid, in my experience. And to try to try to be directly evangelical. If in that moment they reject it and reject your religiosity, gotta be at peace. Gotta be at peace. You gotta try to not fix it in one. That's like gotta not fix it in one <coughs> setting. I know people who because they hated God for years, but didn't end up hating God. It just 
They didn't want to hear my priest talk until they did. Okay, fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, it's 8.26. We can even end a little early. Peace to all. We'll have class again. Same bat time, same bat channel next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Father, help us to keep all the glories of your erection in mind, especially, Lord, help us to be mindful of them in the midst of our own trials and hurts. To all of our brothers and sisters who bear pain or the marks of pain, we ask you to give them a heavenly blessing, O Lord, and show your light deep within their hearts. Help them know the gratitude we feel their suffering might have borne fruit for our lives as members of the body of the church. And should our turn come, O Lord, or be here, help us to bear them well for the glory of your name and the resurrection of your Son. Holy Mary, you observed all these things face to face. Obtain for us the grace to bear them well also. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.